Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom and good evening. I'm Jonathan Hessen, and this is yet another edition of TV7 Editor's Note. Joining me is my dear friend and colleague, Mr. Amir Oren. Amir, how are you today? Good, Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me. As usual. A rare visit. Well, not so rare. Not so rare, no. Well, uh, in this uh, program, as we always do, I'll start with a brief prayer, and then we'll dive into a few announcements uh, since we're nearing our uh, break our summer break of July. Uh, nevertheless, we do have a few uh, productions that will still uh, be aired during this time. Uh, but please join me in prayer and we'll dive right in. Thank you, Lord, for today, Father. Thank you for the blessing and privilege of being able to yet again air uh, another edition of TV7 Editor's Note. I ask that you'll bless today's conversation, bless our viewers as well, that they'll be uh, really uh, encouraged and informed by the discussion that whatever we do or say will be to your glory. We give you all glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amir, first of all, um, the summer break every year, uh, people are always surprised that uh, we're on a break. Uh, thankfully, however, uh, we get the chance to have a break because it's uh, quite demanding, this uh, um, operation, these efforts. Uh, you, of course, have uh, somewhat more years of experience uh, behind you, but uh, nonetheless, uh, during the month of July, because of our affiliation also to TV7 in Finland and the various Scandinavian channels that we initially started with, we operate based on their schedule, as you know, and uh, therefore, uh, during the month of July, we do not broadcast uh, since uh, ratings are plummeting, people are going on vacation and are not necessarily in tune with uh, what's happening all the way here in Israel. Uh, but we do have a few special um, productions uh, in the pipeline, including a Watchman Talk that you will be hosting with uh, Eyal Khulata. Maybe you tell us a little bit about Eyal, what is so unique about him. So uh, Dr. Khulata um, was a boy wonder. Um, he joined um, the military service um, as a participant in a special program uh, called Talpiot, which grooms people who go on to research and development, intelligence, communications, some very creative and secretive occupations uh, within the broader defense establishment, not only the Israel Defense Forces, but also Mossad, Shabak, Atomic Energy uh, Commission. And um, it will be very interesting to hear from uh, Eyal Hulata about his experiences, first of all, as a senior officer in Mossad, where he spent most of his career. And then he went on to serve as the national security advisor and head of the national security staff for the uh, two successive prime ministers who were sandwiched between Benjamin Netanyahu's two terms, the current one and uh, the preceding one. Um, so the working of the national security staff, the issues dealt with Iran, Palestinians, and others, are very interesting to hear from the perspective of a non-political appointee 
such as uh, Dr. Eyal Khulata. In charge, of course, of strategy, analyzing the situation and providing uh, advice uh, to decision makers but, to the best yes, of their abilities. But um, with all the advantages and disadvantages of being a staff officer, Indeed. he um, obviously has the ear of the um, ultimate decision maker, the prime minister, but he doesn't have a vote in cabinet sessions. Um, eventually, the uh, senior officials, uniformed and otherwise, either leave the room or stay there and keep quiet, and only politicians vote, as, as uh, should be the case when the uh, civilian echelon supervises the professional one. The essence of democracy, of course, at play. Uh, how about we look at a few other productions? We, of course, had uh, this past uh, Friday uh, one episode of Jerusalem Studio that was quite interesting, uh, together with Dani Atom and... Uh, Klaus Naumann, two generals, of course, one uh, former chairman of NATO's military committee and uh, the chief of defense, of course, of the Bundeswehr uh, of Germany, the armed forces, and uh, the other, a shrewd a politician, uh, quite capable in his time, uh, a director of the Mossad, and, of course, also a major general. At one, at one time, the two generals were counterparts as heads of their general staffs, directorate of planning. Mm. So um, they have known each other at least from the late 1980s or perhaps uh, early 1990s. A lot of time has passed. They also have the perspective of civilians retired from the military, which is very important because usually military officers, um, while they gain expertise, in their chosen profession, have a very narrow perspective on life in general and even uh, strategic affairs, which, of course, uh, have to do with more than purely military issues. Absolutely. Of course, both of them are still highly uh, appreciated and uh, they contribute uh, in uh, certain uh, fora uh, in order to relay those expertise, which uh, are lifelong, of course, expertise and quite complex situations. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the current situation. Uh, what should we keep in mind for this upcoming month? Because we will have, at the end of the month, still Powers in Play in Jerusalem Studio, a couple of episodes, and uh, the Middle East Review also that uh, uh, you also just uh, aired uh, this weekend. Uh, what should we look at from a holistic perspective? So here we are... Um in midsummer stock taking, and the month of July in the um, domestic Israeli uh, scene, the arena, is very important because it's the last month of the current session of the Knesset. And that means that if uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu survives all the challenges from within and without, to his uh, government's uh, survivability, he will be home free until the high holidays in September and until the onset of the uh, winter session of the Knesset in October. These are very crucial months for him, August, September, because um, otherwise, uh, if he cannot survive either a vote of no confidence 
a very remote chance of that under the uh, Israeli procedure, or more likely, one or two of his own government partners bolting from the government um, because of some dispute or on some pretext because they believe that their chances in early elections would be better now than later. If he manages to um, overtake all of these hurdles, the rest of the summer is good for him. In addition to that, July is usually the last month on the judicial calendar. He's obviously um, undergoing a trial for uh, uh, three counts of uh, fraud, breach of trust, and uh, bribery. And uh, while the march of witnesses uh, is going on, time is getting short before his own testimony for the defense, but obviously is going to be cross-examined by the uh, prosecution. This is um, one situation um, he is not too pleased with. He may yet decide uh, to go for a plea bargain rather than stand on the witness stand. And that we will know um, not right now, not uh, during July, but later on uh, during the summer. And what we have seen in recent weeks is that all in all, the security situation around Israel has abated to some degree. Yes, of course, there are crises. We will talk about them. But uh, the uh, severe threats uh, which Israel faced earlier and which it may yet face again, especially if Iran tries to break towards nuclear weapons or if Hezbollah or Hamas uh, all of a sudden launch an attack. All of that in recent weeks um, has de-escalated and the main focus of the Israeli defense and security forces has been on the northern West Bank both because of Palestinian terror activity and because Jewish settlers have uh, tried to uh, take revenge and rioted against Palestinian villages and towns. I think it, uh, three points are very important uh, to uh, mention. The first one, uh, those rioters, uh, Israeli settlers or uh, whatever you want to call them in Israel, we call them Nalik Valot in most cases, uh, the, the hilltop youth, uh, but it's a relatively marginal group, which is very ex uh, extreme, uh, and it doesn't only attack Palestinians in, in Judea and Samaria and Jordan Valley, but it, it also acts against Christians and, and other minority groups in Israel in a very vigorous way, and uh, uh, they, they are criminals. Uh, for all but, you know, but you know, and for a long time, yes, they were considered marginal, but recently when dozens of them, by one count, uh, up to 200, attacked uh, Palestinians and later on um, drove away the colonel in charge of the uh, brigade. Exact idea of soldiers, yes. Of the brigade uh, yeah. patrolling the area. Um, that uh, became uh, even unpalatable to the tastes of the uh, Shabak, the Israel Security Agency chief, the police inspector general and the uh, IDF 
commanding uh, general, the chief of staff. Refer to those individuals as nationalist terrorists. Indeed. So this, this is right. unprecedented. Indeed. That these three officials, uh, the highest security echelon, you can include the Mossad chief with them, but he doesn't have any internal duties. These three are in charge of security and law enforcement within Israel and the territories. When, when they come out with such a statement and they define these youth as terrorists, or as you correctly mentioned, a nationalist uh, terrorists, it's quite an event. And um, apparently some cabinet ministers um, representing right-wing government uh, parties did not like it. And there was, was a clash, uh, which Netanyahu will have to resolve. This small marginal group, and when I say marginal group, they're still uh, we're talking about 200 out of half a million. Uh, it, there is a certain proportion here. Uh, we're talking about a group that uh, has been attacking border police forces and IDF troops since uh, several dozens of years now. It's, it's not a new phenomenon. That's what I, I mean. And uh, now that it's really ratcheted up throughout certain territories, and it seems to be more organized. But this is a third generation group because uh, right. years ago, uh, these uh, guys were not born yet. They were their fathers or grandfathers. Indeed. Well, uh, I had one uh, situation in the military that I experienced with uh, those uh, uh, individuals, of course, potentially their, their parents or I don't know, yeah. where we came back from a certain mission and all of our tires were slashed. slashed. So uh, it's not since yesterday this was sure. already more than 15 years ago. Yes, but, but you know, Israel, that. the Israeli government um, can hardly apply a double standard if it wants legitimacy, global legitimacy, international. Um, if it acts and rightfully so, against Palestinian terrorists, it cannot justify leniency towards other terrorists just because they are Jewish. And therefore, the policy, while not uh, totally symmetrical, must be um, equal um, justice under law. Indeed. Uh, this is a country of law and order, and uh, this has been also emphasized by the leaderships in Jerusalem, regardless of what camp they're part of. But uh, let's touch on another point that I wanted to raise, and that is the fact that it seems like throughout this region, um, there has been a certain de-escalation. Would you mark the, the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia under patronage of China as that point uh, or paradigm shift in which a certain stream of, of uh, or prospects of escalation uh, have been dimmed to a, a far degree? Well, it would seem so, uh, at least partly, because we don't see, for instance, um, Iranian-backed Houthis firing missiles at Saudi Arabia. And, um, Even though they're still smuggling weapons from Iran to well, Yemen for know, those purposes. That's, that's because um, force buildup has always gone on regardless of uh, ceasefires. Even when Israel and Gaza or Israel and Hamas do not fire at each other, both sides um, stock up 
uh, they prepared their arsenals for the next round. But regarding uh, Iran and its proxies, uh, on some fronts, it would seem at least a temporary uh, lull. However, on others, uh, the Iranians are apparently working very hard and are very generous with their money. For instance, in the same area of the northern West Bank, which we um, remarked about uh, a moment ago, apparently they are uh, funding Hamas and other organizations. And we have recently seen um, a return to what happened many, many years ago, efforts to um, fire crudely produced rockets. But uh, as one knows, it is very easy to produce uh, such weapons, and one of them can hit um, an urban center. Doesn't have to be precise because the uh, perpetrators do not care where exactly it hits. And therefore, Israel, uh, again, uh, after many years uh, of refraining from it, has returned to using aerial platforms, both armed helicopters <coughs> and um, unmanned uh, uh, aerial vehicles in order to avoid casualties, vo both for its forces, when they raid the uh, homes and other um, centers of terrorists, and casualties among the population when this uh, force must extricate itself under fire. So we have seen uh, an escalation, at least in the means applied or employed, and um, it does not mean that there is an escalation in the number of casualties. It could be um, an inverse proportion. But um, if uh, Iran manages to get other Palestinians to act against Israel, either from the Lebanese border, as happened a few months ago, or from uh, the uh, West Bank fence, we could see uh, Israel returning to its methods of the early 2000s. Two points that I, I draw from what you just mentioned. First, of course, uh, the, the surface-to-surface -surface rockets being utilized by Hamas failed miserably in uh, this uh, attempt. It's uh, like a high, high school science class. Right. Uh, so one rocket uh, uh, flew to the sky and dropped on the same point just five meters away from the launcher, and the other rocket uh, failed uh, to even fly farther away than 80 uh, meters from the rocket launch site, uh, those two rockets didn't have any but this warheads is how, on this them. This is how Goddard started uh, a century ago or so with rockets. Of course. Uh, nonetheless, it, it is a development that should be taken note of. And uh, it's not unprecedented, though. Uh, of course. And it's been the case that uh, these type of rockets have been uh, utilized in the past. Of course, uh, uh, you can cite history as you experienced it on your own skin uh, more than once uh, from this territory. So uh, there's a lot of, of um, know-how to deal with those situations, and uh, there is a change of equation. Uh, the, it seems uh, to be quite apparent. Uh, but you, you know the old joke, you're a veteran Middle East hand, but perhaps some of our viewers uh, outside of the Middle East um, are yet to be exposed to this old joke about uh, the Bedouin whose neighbor um, was run over by a train. And then 
a few uh, weeks later, uh, he went to another neighbor, and the neighbor offered him tea. And he uh, accepted, and the neighbor went to the stove and put um, a pot on the stove, started the fire, the uh, water started bubbling up, and the Bedouin took out his gun and shot at the pot, saying, you know, you have to kill them before they grow up and become locomotives. Uh, So the Israeli Defense Forces, they are not going to wait until these primitive rockets become missiles with precision-guided kits and all of that. Obviously, um, Lessons learned from the scenario in the Gaza Strip. In the Gaza Strip, they did try to... Uh, it started 23 years ago. Right. It was called Qassam because uh, Aizadina Qassam was an old 1935 uh, uh, era um, gang leader, as it was called there, anti-British, even more than anti-Jewish. He was killed by the British, and uh, the Qassam brigades are named after him, Aizadina Qassam. And the first rockets were also called Qassam. And at first, they didn't hit any target of value, but left to their own devices, uh, they were perfected, and now they are missiles, not just crude rockets. Well, uh, they're uh, an arms race, of course, as as you noted. Uh, It's ongoing everywhere, and it seems that in the Middle East, uh, it's uh, becoming even more accelerated to a certain degree. Uh, we see also additional countries starting to openly talk about potentially also acquiring civilian nuclear programs, Saudi Arabia, Turkey's already uh, developing one with the Russians uh, uh, at their backs. But uh, it seems like miscalculation is the one word that everybody talks about. Because you know what, what the uh, common denominator is for such civilian um, nuclear programs? which may later turn out to be military, peace. Every country, when uh, it wants to hide its real purpose, says facetiously that it's for peaceful purposes. And when they are found out, they say, well, if we have it, it will deter war, and therefore we did not lie. It's for a peaceful purpose. Indeed. Well, uh, we only can pray for peace at this stage because it seems like um, it's not in the books at this moment. Well, prayer will not bring peace. Uh, we, we should also work for it in addition. Well, to ask for it. Okay. That's, uh, of course, two schools of thought. Um, we don't have very much time left, and I'd like to touch on, on one more point, and that is uh, there's a, a misconception, uh, a growing misconception globally of the United States... Uh, leaving the Middle East. And this, of course, has been quite apparent uh, in in perception here throughout the region. Now it seems that the Americans have started to deploy additional forces in Syria and Iraq and and other other locations of deployment. Um, Is this an attempt by the Americans to somewhat create more friction that then would potentially reassure their partners in the region that they're not leaving and that they're here to stay? When you say forces, um, these are not the uh, main formations of divisions or even brigades because uh, they um, are heavily dependent on logistics. They um, usually have quite a large uh, footprint. 
in the host country. Therefore, they become targets for terrorists and others, and friction with the Russians or other or others or the Turks or whoever happens to share the same space. Usually, these are advisors or special forces, nimble. They can come and go. Um, and another reason for that is that the Americans decided to commit their main forces to the um, Indo-Pak um, Indo command. Right. The Indo-Pacific, or the, as they call it in short, Indo-Pak. And mostly it's the Pak rather than the Indo. Mm -hmm. Because uh, they believe that China uh, may prepare a conflict uh, down the road, not tomorrow, but nevertheless, um, such as uh, a superpower such as the United States cannot shift its attention overnight. So they are gradually doing that. And because of that, uh, proportionally, the Middle East is getting less. Yes, the United States did not desert it altogether, but it is less heavily invested and it leans on allies and partners, among which is Israel. Well, uh, one of the CENTCOM uh, generals uh, who I've spoken to recently uh, really highlighted to me one key ingredient, and that is the tools at CENTCOM's disposal uh, from F-22 Raptors to other strategic tools um, that have been uh, reassigned to this region, something that ultimately when you're talking about uh, firepower uh, in general, uh, CENTCOM is currently more capable than what it was during the mass deployments, despite the fact that mass deployments, of course, are necessary and are potentially uh, viable. Let me, let me dispute it or at least offer another version. These highly sophisticated weapons and the occasional visits by bombers such as uh, the uh, B-1 or B-52s, they are very good for raids or uh, one-shot operations. If you are going to sustain a campaign and get into a war when your enemy lives in the region and you must bring in forces, it's another show altogether. So the Americans would rather deter. One does not uh, really uh, know whether they have the political will to start something. If they are attacked, they will respond. They will indeed. Well, in most cases, or at least that's uh, their modus operandi. Um, but I, I always keep in mind Colin Powell when uh, at least they write about the decision-making of the Iraq war. Uh, they had an aircraft carrier in the area, and they deemed it not enough to do much more than just eliminate certain sure. capabilities of the enemy, Iraq at the time, of course, and therefore there was a very significant force deployment that then brought about the fall of that regime. But uh, unfortunately, this is all the time that we have for today. Uh, until Tuesday, of course, we'll have Jerusalem Studio once again with Dania Tom, former Mossad director, and uh, General Klaus Naumann, the former chairman of NATO's military committee. Until then, Amil, thank you so very much for being part of today's uh, edition. Thank you. And I'd like to thank all of you at home. Until Tuesday, uh, for us, uh, of course, uh, we will be on a break for most of this month, but until Tuesday, from here in Jerusalem, Shalom.
Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.